Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Good morning. Appreciate everybody spending uh, their time with us today. I wanted to um, let you know, we did our first um, webinar on, uh, I guess, pandemic-related webinar almost three weeks ago, and I swear it it feels, feels like it was a year ago. And it was on the um, Families First Coronavirus Recovery Act. Uh, we had uh, two weeks ago, John Olivado and Dave Croft, John's on the phone with me today, uh, did an update, uh, initial uh, update on the CARES Act. And that two weeks seems like a year ago. And we're getting constant rolling guidance on these. And we're also getting constant questions uh, that help, um, you know, help us poke around and explore different issues. And so we thought it was time uh, for an update as uh, the DOL and the IRS have pushed out um, information, and uh, there's been some general consensus developed around issues that we didn't have consensus on uh, two and three weeks ago, respectively. So the way we'd like to do this today uh, is, as as normal, make sure we address your questions. Many of you listed questions on the front end, uh, and we've, we will try to uh, address those. And then to make it as meaningful for you as possible, if you'll shoot the questions to us real time, uh, while one of us is talking, the other will call through those and put those in a format where we can um, try to get you real-time answers as well. So um, the organization of the presentation today, uh, we'll start with uh, CARES Act and PPP loans and then um, mid-sized business uh, opportunities, uh, and John's gonna handle that. And then we'll transition into uh, updates on the um, uh, the CRA, as I call it, some people call it the FFCRA, but the uh, Recovery Act and provisions relating to emergency leave and FMLA. And we'll also talk about how those two dovetail together as it relates to furloughs, layoffs, and um, maximizing your forgiveness of loans under the PPP. So uh, with that, I'd like to turn it over to John Olivato. Uh, and I will give you the heads up that John and I, uh, while we live in the same town, are several miles apart uh, in uh, our homes. And so uh, we can't uh, coordinate with one another uh, visually. Uh, so it may be that we talk over each other a little bit. And I apologize in advance. We will do our level best uh, to make sure we're clear and can be heard. So, John, you ready to take it from here? Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I am. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, those of you who were here last time a couple of weeks ago, welcome back. Uh, if your first time, uh, what I'd like to do is to sort of uh, uh, look back a little bit from the last time we talked. As Kevin said, we've learned some things. Um, some of the guidance we've gotten have, has spurred more questions uh, as to what uh, Treasury meant for getting our guidance from Treasury through generally the SBA for the most part. Uh, when I talk about some of the tax provisions, obviously that's coming from the IRS. Um, so we're, I want to highlight what we've learned that's significant. Um, I want to talk about what uh, other issues are outstanding. Uh, and then I want to focus some on loan forgiveness, which is, is going to be the next place we're going to have to turn in a big way. So what's happened uh, since we last met? We, we, have, we have gotten uh, official guidance, uh, which has been helpful for the most part. That's uh, listed on the screen. You'll see, I would encourage you uh, to find this guidance at the uh, URL, the bottom of this slide. That is probably the single most important place you can go to get this official guidance. Um, what we have received is, our, our, we had, um, uh, we have something called the interim final rule. I'm not making that name up. That's what it's called, but we have several of them. Uh, the interim final rule, the first one that came out was about 31 pages and, and did have uh, helpful guidance. Then we had an interim rule on affiliation, which wasn't that helpful, quite frankly. It mostly did, it was helpful to faith-based organizations and how these PPP loan rules related to them especially uh, churches and, and church organizations and, and, and churches that are affiliated with, uh, you know, a larger, uh, larger group of churches. Uh, we then received a little bit more guidance on the affiliation rules. Um, 
by way of, of sort of an SBA publication. Um, most important thing that's happened, and uh, you know, this is fresh news, uh, the last 24 hours, actually within the last uh, 12 hours, candidly, we got another interim final rule last night, uh, and it's called, and I've got it uh, indicated here, the additional eligibility criteria and requirements for certain pledges of loans. And this relates to helpful information and also uh, spurring a number of questions, specifically for self-employed and sole proprietors. I'm gonna talk about this a little bit. I'm gonna circle back to this. The other helpful information that I, I want you to, uh, uh, to, to, to go to almost on a daily basis are the FAQs that are put out by Treasury and they're on that website that I've linked there. Uh, Treasury has been for the last week updating these with additional FAQs every day. Uh, sometimes the information relates to lenders, uh, sometimes to borrowers, sometimes to very specific questions, but it is fresh uh, almost daily. In fact, it was updated again last night. Let me let me do a little bit of a of a turn here on the information, the guidance we received late last night on sole proprietors and uh, self-employed. A couple of things we've learned, there were a number of questions about how businesses that tax themselves as partnerships should apply for the PPP loans. Um, what we learned last night was what we thought was the right answer, uh, which is that those organizations should apply as an organization uh, and the members or partners, if you're an LLC or a member uh, or a partner in a partnership, uh, should not apply separately. That was an open question that was being debated and talked about. It seemed to make the most sense for the organization to apply, uh, which is exactly what we were told. What we were also told, which is again what we thought, uh, was that in terms of determining payroll costs, if you are taxed as a partnership, is effectively the um, up to $100,000, uh, effectively the partner share of the net profits of the organization uh, are what is reported as payroll costs. So nobody on an average monthly payroll cost uh, who's a member or a partner will have more than $8,333 as a monthly cost. If you follow me, 100,000 divided by 12. Again, that's what we thought it was. Um, not a big surprise, but it's really good to finally see Treasury to acknowledge that because we really weren't sure. Where I think we're going to have to pay attention, uh, and uh, I think where we got a few curveballs, is how sole proprietors are to file. Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about Schedule C's. Uh, and sole proprietors, and what are sole proprietors supposed to do? Um, not surprisingly, again, uh, what the guidance tells us is that sole proprietors, uh, their average monthly payroll, if you will, and we learned a new term uh, that came in, by the way, in this guidance I've never heard before, something called owner compensation replacement. Thank you, Treasury, for that. Uh, effectively, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're Schedule C for in 2019, which is incredibly important. Uh, in fact, I don't think you can file unless you have your tax return done. Um, you have to file your Schedule C. If that shows you, for example, you made $24,000 of profit, then your average monthly payroll is $2,000. Uh, and in fact, uh, you would multiply that by two and a half and you would get the amount of your maximum amount of your loan. What's tricky here for sole proprietors, and I want to point this out, uh, and I've looked at this, and I, I read it late last night, read it again this morning, in terms of the loan forgiveness side, welcome to the loan forgiveness conundrum. We're all going to be wrestling with these questions, and we're guidances. We, haven't, we don't have much on loan forgiveness yet, and we're going to keep getting this leaked out, I think. As to Schedule C, what Treasury told us in this guidance? is if you do not have employees in your Schedule C, okay, so the payroll cost is your share of net profits for a month times two and a half based on 2019 numbers, 
Um, uh, if you weren't in business in 2019 and just in 2020, additional guidance is going to come out. There's nothing in here that tells you what to do if you're not a 2019 Schedule C. Anyway, your forgiveness amount, however, and, and sorry for the math here, guys, but this is this took me a while to sort of make sure I, I was reading it correctly. Even though when you applied, you, you effectively got two and a half times your um, monthly profit as a loan amount. Of that amount, if you don't have employees, and if you don't have rent costs, and if you don't have utility costs, and if you don't have interest on borrowings for the business, which is going to be common for a lot of people in Schedule C. So if you're an artist and you're working at home and you produce your materials at home, um, you know, you, you don't have a separate space that you're renting. I think it's an open question if you're taking some home office deductions, whether those count as rent or utilities. I'm not sure they do, candidly. I think we're going to need a little bit of clarification on that reading this. But for Schedule C, the amount of your forgiveness is not equal to the amount of the loan you got. It actually has to be less if you have no employees. If you have employees, you add their payroll in, obviously. It's a little bit easier. But if you have no employees, I don't think, and you don't have rent, and you don't have utilities you know, outside of your home, which is a question, I don't think you're going to be able to get your entire loan forgiven, candidly. I think you may get about 75% of it forgiven. Treasury says, look, we're not going to give you uh, the full amount of credit for the amount you pay yourself. Remember, I called that owner compensation replacement. We're only going to give you effectively 850 seconds of that. I'm not making this math up. It's in the guidance. And that's coming from the fact that, remember, on loan forgiveness, the clock starts when you get the loan and your expenditures in the next eight weeks. So Treasury is saying, we're going to loan you effectively um, more than eight weeks of your compensation of your profit, right? Because you're taking one month and you're multiplying it by two and a half. That's almost 11 weeks. Think of it that way, 10 to 11 weeks. But we're only going to let you forgive eight weeks of it. Now, if you have payroll again, it's going to be fine. So anyway, I just want to point that out on the Schedule C. That was that caught me by surprise. We didn't see that one coming. Um, and yes, that's a little bit of a of an obstacle for a, a, a sole proprietor filing Schedule C. All right, so I'm going to the next slide. What else have we learned? Um, we learned that in the loan forgiveness, you will not get forgiveness uh, of your entire loan if more than 25% of your loan proceeds were used for something other than payroll. That wasn't in the act. But in the guidance that came out in the first interim final rule, Treasury made that very clear. So the, emph the emphasis is on making payroll. And that's what we're focusing on here. So this is not a good rule if you have a retail business and you're paying high rent, which is not unusual. Uh, you cannot have forgiven of the loan proceeds you got. Um, more than 25% of those costs cannot be non-payroll costs. So that's going to be a little bit of a limitation on the forgiveness side. Uh, I just want to mention again, and Treasury clarified this, even though everybody's focusing on this 500 employees or less, that's not actually true for eligibility. This was clarified in the interim guidance. We talked about this two weeks ago. If you otherwise qualify as a Section 7A borrower, and that can be businesses with more than 500 employees, you are qualified for a PPP loan. You are eligible. So it depends on your size standard classification. Okay. Uh, we learned as to those making more than $100,000 that the $100,000 limit is not a combination of your compensation, wages, or profits, and your health insurance and retirement contributions, but it's just the $100,000 limit. It limits the wages and then your share of health insurance costs and premiums and um, retirement accounts can be added on top of that okay continuing we we have a little bit of clarification 
if you use a payroll provider or a professional organization like a PEO to help staff you uh, as to whose payroll that should be. I, you know, I, I had a question yesterday about this specifically, and I'm interpreting the guidance as saying, who's paying the payroll? Literally, who's bearing the cost of the payroll? Those folks are your payroll. Um, that you need to be consistent about that. Um, so if you're the staffing company uh, and somebody else is paying the payroll, then those persons aren't your payroll. If you're the dentist or the doctor who has contracted with somebody to provide your employees and you're paying the payroll, those are your employees for purposes of this, the way I'm interpreting the guidance. And it's one question on the FAQs. Uh, so it wasn't a lot, but it seemed to indicate that's where Treasury was going with this. We know payroll costs are gross numbers. There was a lot of confusion when the FAQ came out. I think it was FAQ number 16. And it was almost like, what on earth are they trying to tell us with, you know, what are payroll costs? Payroll costs now, uh, it seems clear, are, it, are the gross pay. So if you're paying your employee $80,000 and your employee, of course, is having withholding and other things come out of that, for payroll cost purposes, for determining the amount of the loan you qualify for, you use $80,000. It's very clear also the eight-week period, the time period when you're measuring what you spend begins when you get the loan, okay? and one thing that again wasn't in the act treasury told us that to the extent you have a portion of your loan not forgiven then it becomes a loan from your lender uh, over a two-year period with the first six months with deferment at a one percent interest rate okay so all of this going on and everybody trying to figure out what this is what the, the what the act says, interpret the guidance that's flying at us literally now on a daily basis, which is good. Um, what is it that, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk mostly about what I've seen here and hearing and talking to borrowers and lenders and other professionals. The key in getting these loans, uh, we've learned, is the, the lenders are the most important person. The lenders are the gatekeepers of this program. Um, they have a fair amount of latitude, and the lenders here, for the most part, are banks. And and we've all uh, dealt with banks before. And and the banks were thrust into this role; they didn't ask for it, um, you know, through the SBA. Uh, and they have to. The, even those banks that are used to doing SBA loans and all of the rigorous criteria the SBA puts you through. Congress didn't want all that rigorous criteria here to necessarily apply, but here's the reality of how this program works. The banks keep these loans on their books. Uh, the banks are the ones disbursing the funds. The banks only get the federal money, um, and this is, again, talking to, to lenders. The banks will only get the federal money when forgiveness is applied for and granted, the forgiveness dollars then come from Treasury back to the bank and reduce the amount of the loan. Then the bank's sitting there with the balance of the loan. So because of that, the banks are being rigorous at times. And it's somewhat understandable because the banks are saying, wait a minute, we're going to be holding this paper if there's no forgiveness given. And yeah, we're going to ask a lot of questions. So we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of banks ask for more information. I think, certainly speaking for myself, than I thought they would ask for, and then I really think Congress intended for them to ask for. But the reality is, the banks are going. Wait a minute, um, you know, these, these are loans we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to do. And and uh, yes, the the government even even once. We have these loans permanently, the unforgiven amount, um, uh, and, and, and the SBA is still guaranteeing them. They're still on our books, and, and we're going to, you know, we're going to use some of the underwriting standards that we're used to using, and we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing that. So that's, that's been fairly common. Um, uh, though the, the banks are asking for a lot of things maybe that aren't really necessary, they are focusing for the most part on the payroll costs, 
of clients I've talked to um, have been been asked to give uh, detailed payroll records, 940s and 941s if they have them, uh, all of those kinds of, of things. Um, I think one place where, where the program is struggling uh, is that uh, smaller borrowers are having trouble. Uh, banks, for the most part, because they are being overwhelmed, uh, are basically saying, if you don't have a business relationship with you, we're not going to step up and, and make these loans. Uh, we, we just can't. We don't have the, the personnel to do that. Uh, it's, it's really a problem if you're a smaller borrower and if you don't have a business banking relationship. Surprisingly, a lot of small businesses don't. They have a banking relationship, but they've never borrowed or they don't have a business account. Um, so, what else are we waiting for later uh, in my slide? And I'm going to, uh, we, we, we've learned now from last night, my first bullet point there, um, you know, how owners who are taxed as uh, uh, partners are to file. We know that now. So, I think the most important thing that we're going to have to deal with is that our clients are getting these loans, they're starting to fund slowly. Uh, but they're starting to fund. Um, and the next thing that's significant that's going to happen is they're going to apply in 60 or 90 days for loan forgiveness. We don't know all of those rules. And like I was articulating with the Schedule C, uh, that was a surprise to me that, again, this, this Schedule C person um, not having employees and really not having these rent and utility and interest costs to throw into the forgiveness calculation um, is not going to be able, the way I'm interpreting this guidance, of having 100% loan forgiveness. That surprised me. Um, I guess I understand it, but you know uh, we can argue for a while the policy implications of that. Uh, I was actually disappointed to see that, I think. That's that's not exactly what I thought the spirit of the law was. So once again, small business people are a little bit at a disadvantage here, but we do have some answers in, in terms of how they have to um, apply. Again, get your tax return filed for 2019 if you're a Schedule C, because you have to have your Schedule C. That's what the banks are gonna be looking for. Um, I can go on uh, about the PPP, but I want to cover a couple of other things and then turn this over to Kevin. Uh, so I'm going to just take a few more minutes and talk about a couple of the other loan programs. Okay, so let's jump out of the PPP realm. Let's let's look at the rest of the Act, and there's something in the Act called Title IV loans. And Title IV loans, sometimes called the mid-size business loans. This is where you have more than 500 employees, you're not a PPP, you're not PPP eligible, and up to 10,000 employees. We're, we don't have a lot of guidance out there yet as to how this is going to work. We're starting to see a little movement coming out of Treasury. I'm not talking about the air carriers program, that was carved out. Treasury made, those, uh, made a deal with, with 10 airlines last night. So this is the 450 billion-ish amount that's remaining, some of which has already uh, been pledged in other areas. Uh, we've learned some things about this program, and I, I want to go over these a little bit. I'm going to call them mid-sized business loans. So Treasury has come out and they've told us here's some of the rules, and we don't know yet again how to apply what this means, but we're starting to learn the rules. Uh, and these businesses that would qualify for these Title IV loans, and it's, it's vague right now, it really is. Uh, we know that they can't pay dividends or they can't make other capital distributions if they become a borrower um, and make distributions with respect to their stock during the term of the loan plus one year. We thought perhaps that this would only apply to public companies, but that's not what the restrictions are, just to make that clear. Um, the borrower is not supposed to buy back securities if they're on a national exchange. So there's a little bit of a twist. Employee compensation has to be capped um, for employees making over $425,000. And there's also some limitations on those making more than $3 million. Um, 
What also has come out uh, last week, I think it was Friday or Saturday, Thursday or Friday, was the Federal Reserve Program. Now, this isn't exactly the Title IV loan program, and but it, it sort of works hand in glove, I think. What the Federal Reserve is doing is providing liquidity. That's all the Federal Reserve can do. But by providing the liquidity, they're saying, here's how, here's the rules on us stepping in and effectively buying the loans from the lenders. And so in addition to the Title IV provisions, which are a little bit unclear to us, Treasury came out and said, we, we have this mid-sized uh, lending program. We're going to call it our Main Street Lending Program. You may have heard about this. And this is a big facility of the Fed. Again, I don't view this as in addition to the Title IV loans. I think based on what is out there now, this is the Fed standing behind these loans, essentially telling the banks, okay, we're going to help you here. We're going to, we're going to keep you liquid. You make the loans. We'll buy the loans from you. But here's the rules. And you can see on the slide I have up now, it's some of the mid-sized business rules that I, I went through. Um, but we know a little bit more about this facility. These are, again, not direct loans to the Fed. The Fed's not going to loan you money. But the Fed effectively is going to stand behind the banks. And they're telling the banks no more than a, a $25 million loan. Actually, it's the lesser of, which is interesting, $25 million or an amount which when added to your existing indebtedness or even your credit line, will not exceed four times your EBITDA for 2019. Well, that's interesting. Um, the loans are going to be four years. They will defer the principal and interest. These are not forgivable loans. Uh, for a year, uh, interest rate up to four million, up to four percent, and the loan minimum will be a million. Um, the lenders, unlike the PPP loans here, will end up paying some of the loan fees and the certifications that have to be made are pretty extensive. So just kind of laying the groundwork, Title IV loans, Treasury's working on them, that's in the CARES Act, Title IV of the CARES Act. The Fed has come out and essentially, as I'm reading this, is saying, okay, we're gonna support this loan program here, and here's how we're gonna do it, because these aren't forgivable loans. So to entice the banks, to participate perhaps in making loans they wouldn't otherwise make. The Fed has said these are the rules where if you do this, uh, there's a good chance we'll stand behind and we'll, we'll liquefy, if you will, monetize these loans for you, banks. So um, I've got a couple more things, Kevin. Um, uh, I just want to point out in the, in the tax provisions, uh, we have uh, other provisions of the CARES Act. We didn't talk about these last time. I'm just going to briefly mention them here because I'm running out of time. Um, there's something called the Employer Social Security Tax Deferral Provisions. These apply to just about anybody, except if you're doing a PPP loan, you can't participate in this. And effectively, um, the Employer Social Security tax piece can be deferred for 2020 uh, and, and paid 50% at the end of 2021 and 50% at the end of 2022. Again, if you have a PPP loan, you can't participate in that. Also, you should pay attention to the employee retention payroll tax credits. For many businesses, this may be a better deal than the PPP loan program. Really important, you've got to qualify. My last bullet point on the slide here, to qualify, so anybody who gets or is eligible for PPP loans may not be eligible. And that would generate cash flow. So if I lost money in 2019, but I was very profitable in 2018, I can take my 2019 loss back immediately to the, my 2018 return and get a refund, uh, perhaps of some of the taxes that were paid. That went away after the 2017 act, it's back. So work with your accountant on this. This could free up some cash flow for you. This slide, I would urge you, and we're going to make these slides available to everybody. Uh, they'll be on our website, I think, sometime today. But just take a look up on this, because what's confusing is, well, wait a minute, can I do this program and that program? Well, what's better? Should I do this program or that program? And and these are just some things to, to think about. Um, uh, taking a PPP loan kind of takes you out of a lot of the, of the programs, because effectively that's a governmental grant. 
but there is a, there is some overlap and you know remember on the employee retaining tax and credits you have to have this significant decline in gross receipts if you don't you don't even qualify for that but if you do if you're getting more than a 50% decline you know probably you should model uh whether that's going to be better for you uh versus um uh, taking a PPP loan. And I think with some businesses, you have to be very careful about this. It may be better to utilize the employee retention credits. Uh, so Kevin, I've, I've probably gone longer than I should. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and turn this over to your portion of the uh, presentation. Thanks, John. Uh, appreciate it. And I know better you than to uh, get... There you are. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm not hearing Kevin. Um, Kevin, if you can, again, uh, welcome to technology folks. And again, we're miles away from each other trying to sort of patch this together. I'm going to keep talking until I hear Kevin jump back in, if you don't mind. Let's go back to that slide. And, and I can go through this a little bit more detail uh, in terms of which program to, to pick. Uh, my first bullet point, I think, is 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 true. Um, pick one, PPP or the employer, Sorry. employer retention tax credit. Yeah. No, no, go ahead, Kevin. Take it take it over. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well I I, uh, I inadvertently hit the wrong button on my headset. Um and so I apologize. Are you in a good spot for me to uh start dealing with Yes, go ahead. All righty, thank you. So um we'll as it relates to the CRA, um our first again, our first webinar was very close, uh, I think probably the day of or the day after. Uh, it became a bill or the day, the evening um, that Trump signed it. Uh, we've had a lot more of uh, experience with it and some additional guidance. Um, it's, it's helpful to think of it uh, in two buckets. The first bucket is um, one that it's a simply an expansion of the FMLA that most folks in HR uh, are familiar with. And it expands it in two ways, obviously. It, 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 creates a paid component for people who are out for certain child uh, care situations. And it also creates uh, a new triggering event for coverage, and that is individuals um, who are sick being directed to quarantine by um, a physician who have child care issues, who are caring for folks who are sick, et cetera. So the first piece is FMLA, um, corona, uh, virus uh, enhanced. And the second is basically an emergency sick leave benefit and a paid leave benefit. So there's really two buckets under that act, and, and they, they interplay with one another. Um, but uh, to date, we've had a number of clients have employees in various um, uh, various positions have utilized that. Um, essentially, uh, we've got some new guidance now, we'll talk about that, on how uh, we get reimbursed for it by virtue of payroll tax credits uh, that we can start taking now. So uh, to kind of take you through a little bit of the basics again to make sure uh, we're all on the same sheet of music. First of all, um, employers uh, who have fewer than 500 employees are covered. Um, it's for, for um, private and um, public uh, employers. Uh, and there are exemptions uh, for employees uh, with less than 50 employees, but those are just possible exemptions. It's unlike the bright line rules that are present in a lot of statutes we have where, you know, for instance, the Warn Act or for, for um, unaugmented FMLA, which has a hard and fast rule. Uh, the exemptions here are exemptions uh, for employers with less than 50 employees who um, have uh, certain criteria that they're able to certify. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but I will tell you, if you're if you have 40 employees, do not breathe a sigh of relief and completely ignore the obligations. You need to get with um, your advisor, legal counsel, et cetera, and think about whether or not you're going to meet these exemptions uh, for for the sub-50 employees. Uh, talking about the first bucket, the paid sick leave, um, essentially the broad brush uh, is that if you have the ability to work or telework, you don't have to provide paid sick leave to your employees. And it could be classifications of employees. It could be employee-specific or what have you. But if you have the ability to send someone home to work, uh, if you have, if they're an essential employee and under no circumstances are you able to get them home, but you have work for them there at the facility or the office or what have you, then they are not eligible for paid sick leave. Paid sick leave kicks in uh, with individuals who cannot work or who cannot telework. Um, with that broad brush, 
uh, in mind, there are certain triggering events for paid sick leave. Uh, the first is that they're subject to some type of order of quarantine or isolation. There was some debate that I thought was a little ridiculous on the front end, turned out to be ridiculous. The clarification is, yeah, all these orders that we're hearing about that we're subject to in the various states, um, they're going to qualify as a government quarantine or isolation order, and it will be a, a triggering event. Again, if they cannot work or telework. Um, number two, um, the second trigger events when an employee has a health care provider, doesn't need to be a physician, but a licensed health care provider. I've actually had a question uh, um, regarding whether or not um, a, a medical provider who is not licensed in any way, but who um, draws, and I'm, I'm not making fun of this, but who draws um, um, power, light, and wisdom from, from some celestial being is able to uh, certify someone that they need to self-quarantine, and my answer was no. Um, but it has to be some type of, of medical provider uh, who has uh, advised one of your employees to self-quarantine due to COVID-19 concerns. That doesn't mean that the person has to be COVID-19 symptomatic. It could mean that that person is um, uh, susceptible, has autoimmune uh, conditions or what have you, and would be susceptible. And so I've seen those types of certifications, and I've advised that those certifications are sufficient to trigger uh, the paid sick leave uh, provision. Um, certainly someone who is experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and is seeking a medical diagnosis, I get people wanting to split their hair there and say, well, yeah, they don't have their, they don't have their diagnosis uh, appointment with the doctor until like Thursday, today's Monday. Can I ring them up for three absences between now and then? My answer is, uh, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Don't be a hog. No, let's make sure that we um, allow them to go seek and, and conditionally certify this as leave. We can go back and, and deal with it after the fact if their certification doesn't come through. Um, those, those are typically uh, what I call reasons one, two, and three. Uh, reasons four, five, and six, which have different compensation levels, are um, triggers for the emergency sick leave. Someone's caring for someone who's quarantined. Uh, questions are whether or not there has to be a, a medical basis for that quarantine. Yes. Can you ask for that certification from an employee, i.e., that their fam that their family member, uh, son or daughter or parent is um, living with them and subject to uh, a quarantine? Yes, you can ask for that. Uh, number five, employees caring for a son or daughter because the school is closed or child care is unavailable. Two components there: school is closed or child care unavailable. We'll talk about those in a little more detail now because we fleshed that out. And number six. Um, we have any kind of substantially similar condition that has not yet been diagnosed as COVID, but looks a lot like it, et cetera. And those have, uh, there are a few of those that have been defined by the Secretary of, of Health and Human Services. So um, as it relates to those uh, criteria one through six, again, we've got um, shutdown orders throughout the state. Uh, Kanawha, Morgan, I'm not gonna miss, mention them all, Wood, Berkeley, uh, Harrison Marion and others, uh, they are going to qualify, again, for your employees who have no work to do uh, or uh, cannot work from home. Um, there are um, essential business exceptions in, in the West Virginia order and in the Ohio order where we practice and in, the, um, and in uh, Pennsylvania, and they differ somewhat. Uh, I was uh, very pleased to learn that in many states, um, uh, Good people like my accountants uh, are essential, uh, and that lawyers, surprisingly, are essential. Uh, governor in Pennsylvania is a little more uh, realistic, probably, and has determined that lawyers are not uh, essential. So we, you have to be uh, um, in tune with multi-state um, issues when you have uh, practices or businesses, operations in various states, because they differ from place to place. But essentially, in West Virginia, at least, if you uh, are an essential business, the governor's uh, clarification and, and tightening of kind of his hotspot order that's being broadened every every couple of days is that we went, as essential businesses, uh, we went from having to, you know, suggest strongly that our people work from home to be, um, to, to have now to work them from home to the maximum extent possible. Um, the maximum extent possible. What is that? I have no idea, but I wouldn't, you know, there is a, um, there is a toll-free number that people can call if they believe that they 
inflating it, and I would use the rule of thumb of reasonableness. And if 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 the uh, National Guard or the state police who have been deputized to enforce this order show up because of a hotline call, you should be able to have a reasonable explanation for why your folks are there. And so if I have 15 lawyers who have laptops who are working at Spillman, I'd probably be hard-pressed to explain that uh, to a state policeman. The, the downside, the problem there is that the stick, yeah, there's criminal penalties, that stinks, but there's also the ability, if you're an, if you're an offender, a violator under the act and are operating with people at work who could otherwise be at home working, there's an injunction that'll shut you down. So as a practical matter, um, I pay attention to those and I recommend that my clients, clients do the same. Um, there are, um, there, I had a question just now uh, as it relates to unions, et cetera. Yes, uh, the overlay here is when you're dealing with all these shutdown issues, work from home issues, et cetera, um, there are a number of requirements for unionized employers to negotiate over the terms and conditions of employment. Certainly, certainly changing someone's um, uh, job duties, working them from home, what have you. I've got some clients I know on this phone call that have um, folks who are relatively white collar, but in unions, um, those are subject to bargaining. I have found over the last four weeks that unions have been, for the most part, very cooperative in fashioning um, different work arrangements that enable their people to continue to be paid. They've been less flexible uh, when considering options uh, that are decisions and the effects of those decisions where their members do not get paid. But yes, you need to involve the union in uh, decision-making process as it relates to stay at home. Uh, I can blow through a couple of slides here uh, to childcare leave, John. Um, childcare leave, again, one of the triggering events, probably the one that's most prevalent, certainly the one that could involve the most time away from work because the sick leave, um, the sick leave act provides for uh, two weeks of pay associated with kids who are home from a daycare or uh, a school by virtue of a closure. Uh, and it also provides for uh, an FMLA enhanced provision requiring two thirds pay for 10 additional weeks, up to 12 um, FMLA uh, for this type of scenario. So it's limited to sons and daughters uh, and they've defined that um, specifically. Uh, it is, um, Available, and I quote, no, if no other person will uh, be providing care for the child during the period for which the employee is receiving medical leave, and I'll talk about that in a second. And um, if the child is over 14, there are special circumstances that, that need to be demonstrated uh, to provide the care. This, this, um, this issue has spawned probably the most questions. Um, the, um, I've, I've had every variation on the second prong that you can imagine. Uh, well, you know, the wife used to provide the leave. Uh, why can't she provide it now? I'm not going to let my the husband, who's my employee, go because uh, I know for a fact that no other person could be providing the leave. Or that, yeah, the, the, the person was homeschooled and does homeschool count, et cetera. I, you know, this act is, is a protective remedial type act. And as a practical matter, the advice we're giving, um, and the advice I'm giving generally is, uh, you, let, let fairness be your guide, which is typically the rule in employment cases. There are things that you, you know, could we split hairs and could we make an argument, deny leave, ultimately discipline someone for, you know, for not showing up and then ultimately terminate them for not showing up where they say, I had to care for my child, but we say, nah, your wife was home to do it. Keep in mind, lawsuits are tried maybe 16, 18 months to two years later, we'd be in front of a jury arguing that, um, you know, remember that big pandemic we had where, you know, three jurors lost relatives and friends. Uh, we fired this guy because his wife uh, was unable to care, you know, was, was unable to care for the child. We thought she was. We did not leave. We terminated. Um, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. That's not a great case. So as a practical matter, we do need to collect documentation to, uh, to apply for um, tax credits. We'll talk about that in a minute. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is a remedial statute, should be construed broadly, and, um, you know, leave hair splitting for another day. I think on child care leave, we better have a good business reason for denying it. Um, and not, not that those don't exist, but uh, we need them to exist before we do it. Um, there is a health care uh, provider um, exemption that um, you can exempt any employees who's defined um, under the statute as an individual involved in healthcare. So essentially a very broad definition 
uh, for that exemption. The DOL has issued guidance uh, that they want um, um, employee, employers to be judicious and not try to overly broad, uh, overly broaden the already broad uh, context. Again, uh, the DOL wants and, and Congress wants employees uh, to be able to be home if they need to be home and, and not be um, penalized for that and compensated according, accordingly. So uh, I talked to you about the under 50 employee exemption a moment ago. Again, it's not one of these hardline exemptions. Um, it's a, you may be exempt. Um, you, you can be exempt from the, uh, the expanded FEMLA uh, and medical leave, as well as the paid sick leave due to childcare issues. If um, you, you have an officer, your company basically certify um, three things. Number one, uh, that, that providing leave to, this, you know, to employees and complying with the act uh, causes the business to cease operating, uh, would cause the business to cease, cease operating at a minimal capacity, uh, uh, and that the employee requesting leave is needed, um, or that there are not enough available employees to operate at the minimal capacity. So there's there's a certification that an officer has to make. We don't have to apply for this exemption. It's an exemption that we could be tested on down the road, but the, the DOL said, please don't send us um, applications, all of you businesses out there who are under 50. But before you make the decision that we're not going to apply, uh, comply with the leave, let's make sure that you speak with your outside legal counsel or in-house legal counsel to make sure that um, we are comfortable with the certification. Um, and again, if we're not, if we're not, if we're truly exempt from um, the statutory requirements, that doesn't mean we can't provide leave. It means we can provide leave on whatever non-discriminatory reasonable terms we want to provide it. Um, so uh, that exemption, not a bright line exemption. Make sure if you if you're under 50, uh, you check to make sure you determine, um, you know, you make that determination with your eyes wide open. Um, the amount of paid sick leave with, um, let's see here, where we have, uh, again, I, I refer to them as reasons one, one through three and four, four through six above. Uh, one through three are things that affect the employee personally and directly, uh, and they're paid at 100% of the emergency paid sick leave for the 80-hour period. Uh, reasons four through six are when the, those are the reasons that are related to child care when you're taking care of others. So the employee is not directly affected, but they're helping people who are. That's paid at two-thirds a day. There's caps on each one, 511 uh, daily or five uh, $5,110 in the aggregate for the full pay and 200 or 2000 in the aggregate. 200 a day or 2,000 in the aggregate, rather, for reasons four through six. There's 80 hours total. Um, the um, the so that's that's the that's the paid sick leave as it relates to the the um, supersized um, additions to the Family and Medical Leave Act. Um, it rely it it applies only to the child care when there is you know where there is certification uh, that um, an individual's children's and employees' children are at home because of a school closure or because of a daycare closure. Um, it's essentially a new triggering event, a new covered condition for FEMLA. Leave is still capped at 12 weeks, so there's not an additional 12 weeks of FEMA, family and medical leave. There is only um, 12 weeks total, so if an individual has taken six weeks during the 12-month the, um, uh, measuring period, whichever me measuring period the employer adopts, they have six more weeks that they are available to take as family medical leave. So it's not additional leave. It's, it's a new qualifying condition for the 12 weeks of leave that they would other, otherwise have. Under FEMLA, um, the first two weeks uh, are unpaid. Under FEMLA, for this particular condition, it's otherwise unpaid. But for this, this situation involving child at home, uh, two weeks unpaid, 10 weeks are paid at two-thirds. So you can see where this would dovetail with emergency medical leave. Um, I've had a question, ma'am, are are, you know, if someone has childcare, are we required, are we allowed to require them uh, to take the emergency medical leave on the first two, or may they take it simply unpaid? Um, I, I, I had a hard time figuring out why they would want to, but in that instance, I, I can envision a situation where someone takes two-thirds of their leave, um, uh, two-thirds pay for 10 weeks and the first two weeks unpaid. Uh, yes, they could do that if they want to. Um, we got clarification on intermittent leave. Uh, you know, the as you know, with FMLA, FMLA can generally be taken on an intermittent basis. Um, that is to say, I don't want to take it 12 weeks consecutive. I can take it as I need it. 
uh, et cetera. Here, uh, the DOL issued guidance that while it, intermittent leave um, is something employers should consider, it's not something that they must permit. It has to be, um, uh, it has to be agreed upon. So intermittent leave, um, again, DOL is encouraging us to use it. It is not something that we have to grant for this form of family medical leave. Um, so, uh, get plenty of questions. I've got some today to uh, employees who just say um, that that they that they won't work. Some of them are, you know, genuine for sure. They don't want to work uh, because they're concerned about the situation or their their particular conditions or whatever. Some may be interested in the in the you know short term benefit of a of a higher unemployment uh, comp uh, payment, but for whatever reason, there are general um, rules that are that are out there that are unrelated to the pandemic that give employees the ability uh, to, when, when exercising good faith, to have an argument at least that, that they shouldn't be required to work. Um, OSHA is one, and the National Labor Relations Act is another, that if there is an imminent danger um, that, um, you know, that they don't have to come to work. So, um, on the flip side of that, a generalized fear, like, hey, I don't want to get COVID-19, none of us do, I don't want to come to work, I'm nervous, that's not enough. So there's a, there's a sliding scale. The eminent danger that I've seen has to do with employers who have not adopted a really solid plan on sending people home, who allow people who are symptomatic to come to work, and who may not even be fully symptomatic of, of COVID-19, but have some of the symptoms of COVID-19 in close proximity to, to another worker or sharing the same vehicle without proper sanitizing or sharing the same desk or the phones or mics or what have you. So uh, while it is, um, while the generalized fear of contracting COVID is not enough for an individual to come to work, and uh, you can insist that those people do, if there is an imminent danger, any of those factors like symptomatic people in the workplace that are not addressed or lack of, of, of appropriate social distancing within the workplace, et cetera. Yeah, don't start disciplining those people until you've corrected those situations and then re report back to the people that they're corrected and bring them back. So discipline during this time for staying at home is one that you need to be particularly careful with. Not saying you can't do it, you absolutely can, but do it in connection with your labor lawyer to make sure that um, the chess game, so to speak, plays out appropriately. Um, unemployment, um, generally it, it's expanded, uh, here it is available for almost every COVID-19 reason, except for kind of dovetailing with the last slide, a situation where someone quits because of a general fear. And so I've literally had seen this play out in text messages with, um, with a, with a client who was referred to me by a, a good friend who's an accountant and he, his situation was. He, had, he played chess with this employee for about three days where the employee kept articulating reasons why he didn't want to come to work. And the employee who was a short-term employee would make significantly more through July on unemployment than he was making at this, at this job. And the employer didn't want to get charged with that unemployment and also didn't want to set a precedent. And they had to go through this dance of articulating the fear the situation, making sure that there was a response back, that the situation wasn't as the employee perceived it, et cetera, to the point where there was essentially no reason why the guy was refusing to come back other than a generalized fear that he may have COVID. And so it can be done, uh, but there is an incentive right now, at least, to try to get short-term unemployment compensation uh, because there's a $600 a week uh, premium on top of the first dollar, meaning low earnings uh, unemployment or um, regular unemployment. Uh, on top, if you get one dollar, you get six hundred on top of it. It's not it's not proportional. So the I think it's four twenty four, four twenty six, or something to that effect in West Virginia at the top rate. So it'd be a thousand and twenty four, twenty six dollars for your higher higher compensated employees who are off on comp. Uh, they're some employees, you know, uh, try to obviously couple that with um, you know, some other type of, of leave uh, where they've asked for leave and are fired. And then those can, those can certainly spawn unemployment uh, cases as well as, as discrimination or retaliation cases. So uh, make sure that, um, again, make sure that when you're taking disciplinary action during these times, you're walking it through with your labor lawyer. Um, 
quickly, I know we're running uh, a little light here on uh, telecommuting. Again, teleworking, not only is probably the vast majority of the people on this call teleworking, uh, many of our work, work um, employees are teleworking. There are a host of both pragmatic efficiency uh, and efficiency related and legal concerns associated with telecommuting. And we're doing another seminar on it. And I'm not gonna steal one of my partner's thunder on that, but generally speaking, uh, tele, as I said, teleworking is a, is a an exception to all of the leave we've discussed before. If you can telework, you don't have to provide them with leave, but uh, teleworking is not without perils. Make sure you've got a clear policy uh, on that. Make sure that uh, the expectations for performance and quality and quantity of work are still there. Make sure that there are routines established as part of that process where people um, where people will um, you know check in regularly with their employees to make sure that you know that connectivity is still there and make sure that you understand that when people are at home and you can't see them if they are performing work uh, for the company taking calls at weird hours etc and they are hourly folks they are engaging in compensable activity so my partner Eric Kinder uh, will have a, a seminar or webinar sometime later this week uh, on all of those issues uh, but tell Telecommuting is not to be entered into lightly. Uh, moving quickly to the tax credits. Again, the leave that we talked about that we have to provide uh, if we're a covered employer and if there's no telework or regular work to be provided is effectively work that we, we, we are uh, paying for but will be reimbursed for by virtue of a, of a tax credit. And there's been guidance that come out that, that has come out rather um, governing uh, how those tax credits are, are to be applied for. Essentially, uh, the qualified leave wages are the wages we've talked about, uh, who are paid uh, on employees uh, for leave taken April 1st to December 31st are those types of wages that are subject to the tax credit. So if we have someone who is out, um, you know, March 15th, uh, and we, you know, we, we did the, the due diligence and let them go out on leave, uh, et cetera, and paid them whatever we paid them, uh, that uh, those unfortunately uh, were those were it was good to do, but we don't get to take those as uh, as tax credits. It, are, it is essentially uh, well defined that it's April 1st to to December 31st qualified leave wages. Um, so it's it's 100% of 10 days of of the sick leave bucket, and 100% of of uh, the two thirds pay uh, of the extended. Family leave bucket, and um, it includes not only those wages, uh, but it includes um, the the portion that we pay for qualified health plan expenses uh, and Medicare tax employer side share uh, to the to the employer employees who are out. So it's wages plus uh, employer Medicare um, share uh, contribution as well as uh, qualified health plan expenses. To um, uh, next slide to, to claim the tax credit um, we've got to report uh, the total qualified leave wages and related uh, credits for insurance and uh, Medicare for um, each quarter on our federal employment tax return if we don't have enough to offset in the way federal employment taxes uh, to offset we can advance uh, request in advance uh, of those credits um, we can um, we're eligible to start claiming the credits as soon as we paid employees for the period of paid sick leave or expanded FMLA leave. So it's not if we're paying a week after, uh, as as most do, uh, then we uh, are eligible to uh, claim the credit when the money leaves our account and is transferred to the employee's account. Um, for the credit, we were advising that uh, employers maintain. Uh, various records and those are on the slide uh, on the next slide and we'll give you a, a copy of, of those I'm not going to we're running tight so that's on the slide uh, um, 38 for you guys to look at in terms of the records you need to have as backup um, I would also uh, we've also listed the records that uh, we believe you need to keep um, for the under 50 exemption for um, uh, quarantine-based or quarantine order-based uh, leave that we provide and for the child or school, school closing uh, that we need to provide. There's a, there's a strange uh, dance between three sections of the SBA and the IRS and the DOL regulations that relate to children over 14 
And it basically it says uh, that, um, you know, to, for us to, ch to claim the, the credit and therefore for the employee to get the leave for a, a stay at home, uh, staying at home with a kid whose daycare or school is closed. And if that employee is under, or sorry, over 14, there needs to be um, a special circumstances. I don't know what those mean, and nobody knows exactly what those mean. Uh, I, I, you could suggest that it's, uh, you know, the, you know, I'm, between my kids, I mean, a few of them would be fine being at home at 14. Uh, one of them definitely would not. So I don't know what the special circumstances are. I think uh, 14, as it, as the kid gets older, 15, 16, or 17, we may be looking for something from the from the employee, and the, and the IRS may be looking for something from us to suggest that uh, you know the the child has people who care for him. Uh, after school anyway, uh, by virtue of the, of, you know, the, the, the individual's particular circumstances or what have you. So um, under 14, no problem. 14, probably not a problem. 15, more, more requests is needed. Up to 17, yeah, we need to know, we need to document why the person needs leave to see that person. And we need to have that documentation uh, on the back end when we're seeking the credit. Um, big picture, we're talking about the records being retained for, um, for four years, uh, at least, or the date the tax becomes due or pay, whichever's later. So um, with that, I think we've reached the end of our time. Uh, if you do have questions about any of the, hey, any of the slides yeah, that hey, Kevin, and I flew through. If, if I yeah, can, go ahead. Kev, yeah, Kev, Kevin, if I can just, a couple of things, if we, we're, we're over our time. I just want to clarify a couple of things. We've gotten a lot of questions. I can't get to them all. Uh, but specifically back to the PPP, I talked about, and I had uh, gone into a little bit of depth on the Title IV loans, okay? And those are going to require restrictions on compensation and distributions. The PPP program does not have any restrictions on compensation or distributions other than you can't count more than $100,000 of compensation. That's the restriction. Uh, the Title IV restrictions, again, PPP loans are not Title IV loans, they're different. Um, uh, Title IV loans will have those restrictions. The Fed facility that's going to sort of back those up also has those same restrictions on distributions, dividends, and compensation. So don't confuse the two. PPP, you're fine. Uh, other than the hundred thousand, that's your that's your governor. And one other question dealing with the affiliation rules. They're somewhat complicated, but here's an example. So let's say Company A has a sub two subsidiaries, Company B and Company C. And company and their and company A controls uh, both B and C. Okay, so parent controls B and C. If B wants to apply for a PPP loan, um, the employees of C and A are also going to have to be counted uh, because, in my example, since A controls B and C, uh, they are deemed to be affiliated. Um, now that it, there are exceptions that are very important for franchised businesses and also for hotels and restaurants. So the general affiliation rule is going to count, you know, subsidiaries and parents and and all sorts of things under various scenarios. It doesn't have to be ownership. It can just be effectively controlled by the same group of people even. Uh, so those rules are a little complicated. You probably do want to talk to your advisors about whether those would apply to you or that. Kevin, we're over. Uh, I don't have uh, anything else at this point. Thanks. I got a couple here real quick. Um, essentially, we've had uh, I've had a couple of questions about employees who um, would prefer just to be laid off, and and um, you know, do we, you know, what kinds of of documentation and efforts do we have to make as it relates uh, to teleworking and uh, and offering the same? Essentially, again. Um, if this is an employee uh, that you need in the long haul, my guess is they're going to work with you and, and try to work from home and you're going to work with them, et cetera. If it's an employee who you're simply in the chess game with, associated with denial of unemployment because you're worried about setting a precedent, um, you, there are a litany of things you're going to need to offer them in terms of working from home opportunities, et cetera. Uh, and um, uh, again, it is unique to that situation. And But before you take an action of, of terminating someone, um, I would make sure they uh, that you you talk with your advisor. I've also gotten a few questions here about layoffs versus furloughs. Uh, we, there's a piece up on our COVID-19 uh, task force website. It's at spillmama.com. 
and you can link from there that that lays out those two and if you still have questions about that after reading that uh feel free to to call me and then i had a couple of questions here uh about employees who uh were on unemployment before um the uh cares act and that continued thereafter and uh, whether or not that 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 continues and my uh, my you know again I haven't seen that issue litigated or anything like that, obviously yet. My guess is no, they're not because it's qualified. You know, it's qualified leave for for COVID related leave, and it was if it was not COVID related before, uh, you know, two months ago when they were terminated or, or laid off, probably not um, covered now. But again, fact dependent, uh, uh, and I would discuss that with your advisor. That's about all I can hit, uh, can hit before we leave. Thank you, John, very much. Thank you for Pamela. Uh, for putting this together and thanks for all of you all for uh, spending your time uh, with us this morning and if you do have questions that we didn't answer or what have you or, or and um, need to speak with us feel free to email either john or me and we'd be happy to get back with you thank you very much